0: Father, we thank you for today. We thank you uh, for this time of season where we get to um, reflect on all the ways in which you have poured out your goodness and grace upon us throughout the year. Lord, we also thank you for the opportunities to gather together with family and uh, friends from out of town, and um, we just pray that uh, throughout the rest of this month and uh, the weeks ahead, Lord, we would keep you uh, first in our hearts and that we would uh, be focused on you, and uh, and not on on the worldly things that can so easily distract us. Lord, we thank you for this church, and we thank you for um, allowing us to to meet in person to uh, to study your word together. Lord, we thank you for this hour where we can gather together in your name and study Second Samuel. We thank you for the resources that you have provided, and uh, Lord, we thank you for our minds that we can learn. Lord, we pray that uh, during this hour, you would attend to these things and be glorified in us. Um we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I love this, this time of year. It's always filled with such uh, expectation and realization. You know, the weather has turned from scorching hot days to, to warm days with maybe a few cold days sprinkled in. Um, um, football season is, is really starting to peak. Uh, you got from rivalry weekend to bowl season in college football, and and in the in the NFL, there's the constant comparison of um, of standings and the speculations about uh, playoff implications. Though, as a, personally as a Cowboys fan, it's always kind of a precarious time of season because this is when the Cowboys typically fall apart, um, and it's always depressing. <laughs> But, and of course, uh, we have the holidays, you know, the turkey, the pecan pie, uh, the, the annual visit with extended family and with friends from out of town, and, and obviously, uh, you know, the presents, right? We're all excited about that. Uh, who doesn't like presents? Um, I also love the new year, uh, you know, with the descent of the big glowing ball in Times Square and just how it signifies the closing of one year and the beginning and the birth of a new year always find myself in those moments as it's descending, trying to think on uh, everything that's happened this the past year and trying to savor those last few moments. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just such a it's such a great time for reflection and hope, you know, but most of all uh, is the celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely. So perhaps some of you, you uh, have begun the countdown, or so, uh, maybe uh, so we can continue the countdown or, or start it here. Well, as we've known, as we transition to Second Samuel here, we've known for a while that David has been anointed to be king, but has not yet realized that. Well, here in our passage this morning, the, the countdown is over. The final day on the calendar has been checked off. You know, the ball has dropped and signifying here the, the start of a new kingdom, the time has finally arrived, and God has made good on his promise to, da- to make David king. However, this is not um, a time of just celebration. It's also mixed with mourning, as we saw last week. Israel has, has suffered a humiliating defeat and lost her king, and, and David has lost his best and dearest friend. And David's ascension to the throne has come at a great cost. Well, our passage this morning is also uh, a very, one of maybe one of the most significant historical events recorded in all of Scripture. Not only has God fulfilled his promises to make David king, and God has placed his chosen man on the throne, but this is the first physical manifestation of the kingdom of God. A very significant uh, moment in Scripture. Well, our passage this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 2. And this chapter uh, breaks down into three episodes. First, in the first seven verses, we have David is anointed king over Judah. In the second episode, Abner makes Ishbosheth king over Israel. Verses 5 through 7, or no, I got that wrong. That's 8 through 11. And then the battle at Gibeon, 12 through 32. So let's first start, and we'll look at each one of these passages um, independently here. So let's first look at verses 1 through 7, where David is anointed king over Israel. So 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. It says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and with his two wives, also Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord. Because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be be valiant for Saul. Your Lord is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So here we have David is anointed king over over Judah. Um, and what is the first thing that he does? What is the first thing you see that David does here? Yeah, he prays. He prays. And what does he pray? Yeah, which city of Judah? Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And if so, which one should I go up to? All right, And he says, to go Where? To Hebron, yeah. So we have to remember, David is currently in Ziklag, which is on the border of Philistia and Judah. And now God is telling him to go to Hebron, which is kind of in the center of Judah, right? And so we see here that he does. We are off to a really good start, (laughs) right? If you were with us at all in 1 Samuel, uh, we did not see these sorts of things from Saul, Right? So why do you think um, it's significant um, for him to go to hebron? What's significant about Hebron? What would you guess what would you What would you say? Why Hebron? Well, there are several reasons. <laughs> One is uh, politically, right? So politically, it signifies a break from Philistia. So remember, uh, David was uh, over there with the Philistines hiding out and and pretending to work with them. And so this signifies a a break. And so geographically also, it's far enough from Philistia that David can strengthen his forces uh, without Philistine interference. But perhaps also, What's significant is, uh, is the theological significance. Um, and Hebron is one of the, the great cities of, of Judah. Uh, and it's a great city for its significance for the patriarchs. So what I want to do is, um, is go through a couple of passages in Genesis where we get to see the significance of this city. So if you will, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Genesis chapter 13 we're just going to kind of hop around Genesis a little bit so we can see this. All right. So let's look first at Genesis 13. We'll look at verses 14 through 18. Would anybody like to read that for us? All right, we're going to be quiet, so I guess I'll read. Okay, verse 14. Okay, thank you. This is, so we see uh, Abram setting up an altar to the Lord there. Let's flip over to Genesis chapter 23. Okay, let's look verse, first at verse 2. It says, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, Abraham Uh, went out went uh, into mourn for Sarah and to weep for her now then jump down to verse 17 and let's look at verses 17 through 19 hey would anybody like to read verses 17 through 19 thank you. Yeah, so we see this is a burial place for um for the patriarchs here. So then let's flip over to 25. Look at verses 7 through 10. So Sarah buried here, verses 7 through 10. Anybody <laughs> Yeah, good. So then Abraham's very there. Now let's flip over to 49. This last passage we'll look at. Verses 28 through 33 of Genesis 49. Anybody like to read that for us? Yeah, thank you all. So, what is the significance of Hebron that we see here? Yeah, this is where uh, we have where the patriarchs are buried. Okay, and so we see here that that David obeys. Okay, so David, we see going back to to Second Samuel, he gathers his his wives and his household, and they move to Hebron. And all of the men of Judah then they come up and anoint David to be king over the house of Judah. So at this city, which is so rich with covenantal significance as we just read in Genesis, David here is anointed a second time and is now made king over Judah. And we see the significance also here that God is making his kingdom physically present. Well, uh, in Jumping now down to verse 5, uh, we see now that uh, David hears about the actions of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And then he hears what they've done for Saul. And so David writes to bless them. We see here uh, in verses, um, so this is 4b. says, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. He sent messengers to them to say to them, and look at this: we have um, we have him blessing them, and then we also see him inviting them to join his his kingdom. So, um, so he says here that uh, the Lord uh, he he asked them for the Lord to bless them for their loyalty to Saul. Okay, how how, how did they show loyalty to Saul? Does anybody? remember we went over this a couple weeks ago anybody remember how they showed loyalty to Saul yeah all right so after the death of Saul they they um they nail his his body up to the, to the wall in one of the towns there and and they go and they they take his body down and they they burn it and then they bury his bones and why why was it specifically the men of Jabesh Gilead you guys remember this Exactly. Yeah. Right. So they were being uh, oppressed and um, uh, by a commander. And he said that, you know, yeah, I'll make a treaty with you, but you have to rip out your right eye. And they said, give us uh, seven days here to to see if we can find anybody to come save us. And so Saul comes and saves them. Right. And so we see here David going out and, and writing to them to not only bless them, but also to to invite them. So let's look at what he says. He says, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me over them. So, uh, he says here, this is uh, really significant here. He says, may the Lord show his steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Right, this is the steadfast love. This is uh, the, the Hebrew term hesed, which is such a significant term. This is God's covenantal love. This is a love, a particular love of God for his people that he shows to them in covenant. And it's, his, and it's expressed through his covenantal faithfulness to them. And then following that, we see that David blesses them, and he invites them to join his kingdom. What we see here is what is significant, I think, about this blessing is that uh, not only is he saying, um, saying God will continue uh, to, to show his covenant faithfulness, but now this, as David's also blessing them, we're seeing a, an identification, a close ident- identification between David's throne and the throne of the Lord. Right? That the Lord's blessing and his covenantal faithfulness will now be expressed uh, as being closely identified with David and his kingdom. Right? This is, a, this is a, a major moment in redemptive history. And so this will also show dire consequences for anyone who opposes the, king, the kingdom of David. So enter Abner. <laughs> the next section here, verses eight through eleven, is everybody on board? Well, no, not Abner. But Abner, verse eight, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So here we see Abner makes Ishbosheth king over Israel. A couple of things to point out here that I think are significant. I think Abner here is acting on his own self-interests. He wants to maintain his power, and he believes the only way to do that is to reestablish Saul's throne with his son Ishbosheth. So Abner, he sets up Ishbosheth, but not in Gibeah where Saul was and where uh, Saul's from, but rather at Mahanaim, which is on the other side of the Jordan of the Jordan River. And, um, and, and likely the capital of Gilead. Um, and, the, and it's possible in doing this that the narrator is signifying to us that just how uh, precarious um Ishmael's reign was. Well, how are we to assess Abner's a- actions here? What would you say about Abner's actions here? How would you characterize them? Non-covenantal. Yeah, non-covenantal. Yeah, absolutely. This is an act of rebellion. It's an act of rejection of, of David's throne and an act of rejection of Yahweh, even in his throne. He's setting up a kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of God. Listen to what one commentator says here. I love this. This is such, uh, such a great comment. Um, he says The promotion of Ishbosheth as king was not only a continuation of the hostility of Saul towards David. But also an open act of rebellion, as Mary points out, against Jehovah, who had rejected Saul and chosen David, prince, over Israel. And who had given such distinct proofs of this election in the eyes of the whole nation, that even Saul had been convinced of the appointment of David to be his successor upon the throne. So not only is this just an act of rebellion on Abner's part, but it's also especially condemn- condemnable, as we'll see next week, that, so- that Abner is perfectly aware that it is the Lord's will to give David the kingdom, to transfer the kingdom to David. And we'll see that next year. next Not next year, next week. I have, year- I have years on my mind here for some reason. yeah. And so this is not just an act of rebellion, um, but an act of rejection of David's throne. Um, and, and not only that, but in, in a, a rejection of, of Yahweh and his setting up the kingdom. And as we'll see in several weeks in 2 Samuel 7, as the Lord has chosen and appointed David's throne as the representation of his throne on earth. And so what we'll see is there's going to be this really close association between David's reign on earth and the Lord's reign in heaven. And so to oppose David and to, po- to oppose his kingdom is to oppose the Lord himself. The narrator even alludes to just how shameful Abner's actions are in doing this with the name Ishbosheth. In the parallel passage in First Chronicles, um, the name of Ishbosheth is Ishbaal, but his name here is Ishbosheth, which means shameful. So we see Abner in his uh, rebelling and rejecting the Lord's uh, kingdom out of his own self-interest to preserve his power, and the narrator telling us that this is this is shameful. Uh, in this section, we also see that there is uh, disunity in the kingdom. The kingdom is split now, and the narrator tells us that Ishbosheth reigned over Israel for two years, and David reigned over Judah for seven years and six months. Uh, the exact chronology of all the events are somewhat disputed, and I don't want to get into that. But, um, but, anyways, so. Uh, we move now to the final scene, which is the battle at Gibeon. Let's, let's read that, uh, starting in verse 12. He says here, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon, uh, to Joab, the son of Zeruah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down. The one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve from Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called uh, which is at Gibeon and the battle was very fierce that day and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David and the three sons of Zeruah were there Joab Abishai and Asahel now Asahel was as swift on foot as a wild gazelle and Asahel pursued Abner and as he went he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men, and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was, and all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amna, or of Amma, which lies before Gea. On the on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon, and the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group, and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, "'Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter?' How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all the night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men, and they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which is at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. From this point forward um, to the end of chapter 3, the narrator is is focusing on um, a series of moves by Abner that all result in, in failure. And through these events, we see Abner acting in the pattern of Saul, and it illustrates the foolishness of opposing God. So, in this section of Abner's moves, uh, we see Abner's military aggression and defeat. We see Abner, he gathers men at Manayim and they go to Gibeon. Now the purpose of this move is to bring David's Judean kingdom to an end and to bring Judah under Ishbosheth's rule. So not only has he set up uh, a king in opposition to David, and a kingdom, and splitting Israel, he is now actively seeking the end of David's kingdom. Now Joab, he recognizes Abner's aggression, and he gathers men and, and meets Abner at the pool of Gibeon. And so what we have to realize is that they're up here in Mahanaim, which is on the other side of the Jordan, and then Abner brings all these men down to, um, to Gibeon, which is on the southern side of of, um, of Ish-bosheth's kingdom, right? And so it's not very far from, from Judah, okay? So this is an act of aggression. And so Joab recognizes this and gathers men to go meet him there. And so what follows then, um, as we read, is just, it's just a series of actions. It's an action-packed sequence of events. One, we see 12 young men from each side battle each other with all 24 of them dying together. Then we see like a great battle break out, which then ends in Abner's defeat. Then Joab and his brothers, um, Abishai and Asahel, they recognize their chance to capture and end Abner, and they chase after him. The speedy Asahel is hot on Abner's trail, and it seems like he's just a couple of steps behind him. And then Abner... He ends Asahel's pursuit by running the butt of his spear through Asahel's stomach. So we can infer from that that Abner was an extremely strong man. But then Joab and Abishai, they're not far behind, and then they catch up to Abner at the hill of Amma. And with the men of Benjamin united behind him, Abner makes his appeal from the hilltop. Shall we allow the sword to devour forever, he, said, he asked. Shall we face its bitter end? How long until you call off your pursuit of your brothers? Here he's trying to show that, uh, that he's uh, not at fault. But Joab is no fool here. His retort shows that the blood spilt that day is on Abner's hands. He says, none of this would have happened if you had not opened your mouth. So, Joab opens his mouth and blows the trumpet and ends the fight. We have the aftermath. Abner, they return home, and Joab, they return home. And we have this interesting thing. The narrator tallies up the, the losses on both sides. David has lost 20 men, whereas Abner has lost 360 men. What are we to make of that? What do you guys make of that? Um, that reality from this battle. Okay, how so? God wants Judah to be the leader mm-hmm. False Israel of that kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So notice as we read through the passage, um the Lord is not really mentioned at all in this. But we see in the aftermath, in the in the body count, the Lord in his providence has spoken. Right? David has a de- decisive victory. Um, and it's another indication of the Lord's blessing on David and an appointment to his throne. The Lord has, uh, uh, it, it's right, we, have, we see Abner and Ishmael on this path to destruction. And the Lord will protect his kingdom. <clears throat> well, in conclusion, I think, um, I think we can um, take out a number of important truths uh, for, our, for our daily lives here, uh, that we learn from 2 Samuel. I think, first of all, we see that the Lord, He is faithful to His promises, and He brings about His will, um, His holy will, through His providence. See, number two, um, we really see here uh, the folly of opposing God. Abner and Ish-bosheth, they are on a course of destruction. They are on a course doomed for failure and defeat. Abner's foolishness in knowingly opposing the Lord results in the Lord opposing him. Rather than blessing David and in return being blessed by the Lord to hearken back to um, the covenant with Abraham where the Lord says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Abner sets up Um, a sort of puppet king to preserve his own political and military position. So Abner illustrates for us just the foolishness um, in rejecting the Lord's will. And his example, I believe, provides us an occasion...